Please turn your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's verses 1 through 7. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Um, Where do you go to check out the condition of your body? Especially when you're not feeling well. Well, the obvious answer to that is that you go to the doctor, right? You go to the doctor and and you have him check you over to make sure that there's nothing too seriously wrong with you. But for some people, they despise going to the doctor for that very reason that the doctor is going to tell you that there's something wrong with you and they don't want to go because they don't want to hear the bad news if there is bad news. But the question is, what if the bad news, what if this assessment of where you're at physically helps you to improve your life down the road? What if the doctor's assessment, even though it's initially bad news, says to you, if you take these these pills and these vitamins or whatever he he prescribes, uh, down the road, your health is going to improve and you're actually going to get better. Would you not want to hear that? Would you not want to know that so that your life can improve? Well, here in this passage in Revelation, we have the risen Lord. And Jesus, when he was doing his ministry here in this world, was often called the great physician. The great physician. In one sense, because he healed through his spoken word. He could speak. And the power of the Spirit, the power of his divinity working through his word would restore people, give sight to the blind, enable the lame to walk again, cleanse lepers and so forth. He could restore people just through the word, the power of his word, reaching out and transforming the lives of those to whom it was addressed. But Jesus is also greater than that. He not only had the power to restore us physically, he had the power to restore us to God the Father spiritually by cleansing the corruption that is within us, which is sin through his precious blood shed for us. In order order for our sins to be removed, the righteous blood of of, of a sacrifice had to be offered on our behalf. And that righteous sacrifice, as Hebrews said, that takes away our sin completely is the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. So he is the great physician. And he is now in his resurrected glory. And he's communicating these letters to the seven churches. He's assessing their condition and he's saying, this is what I see going on in your life. Some things are positive, some things are negative. But the assessment is always geared towards improving the condition of God's people, the condition of the church, the condition of our relationship with one another and with Christ. And so Jesus may give us some bad news, but it's always with the intent to improve our health as a church, And even as a denomination, even as his people, that we might better love him and love uh, love each other and even love our neighbors 
as Christ so loves us. So the exemplar church Jesus is addressing here is the church of Ephesus. As the risen Lord speaks to their condition and to the condition of our heart as well. Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. Hear God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have been found false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken or abandoned your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, instruct our hearts, not only our minds, Lord, but instruct our souls this morning. Help us to receive your word as it is proclaimed from this pulpit. Lord, use me, even, even if it needs to be in spite of me. Use me as your mouthpiece, Lord, to proclaim your truth to your people, that they might know and receive it with joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The question is, what is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your heart? This uh, is not a reference, obviously, to that large muscle in the center of your chest, which pumps out about 2,000 gallons of blood each and every day. Uh, Your heart here, in the biblical sense, is referring to your soul the center from which your emotions and desires emanate, which in turn drives your will to act. The heart, in a biblical sense, refers to your soul, the center from which your emotions and desires emanate, which in turn drive your will to act. As your physical heart serves as that vital organ that keeps your life uh, going keeps you alive, you would want to know if there is anything threatening your heart, wouldn't you? Because you know without it you're not going to live. And so if there was anything threatening it, you would want to know and you would want to have it fixed if possible. Would it not also be true regarding the church, Yours and my relationship with Jesus Christ, who is our life. Spiritually, he is our life. There's no other way to God save through him. So these letters to the seven churches, that the risen Christ Jesus is dictating to John, are to be passed on to them with the larger church in view, even us in history, revealing the heart of our resurrected Lord 
uh, as one who wants us to understand what our condition is. He wants us to understand what our relationship with him is. So to the angel, the elder of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. How does Jesus first present himself to this church? As you look at the church of Ephesus, the one thing that stands out is the word perseverance. They are strong. They are solid. And they're willing to fight anybody to defend the faith that's been given to them. They're a powerhouse. And Jesus comes to them first with the, with the presentation that I am the one who holds the seven stars in my hand. Here he's not just talking about having authority over the church, but over the whole cosmos as well. He is looking at himself as the omnipotent God. The God over all creation. Over all life. And he's addressing the condition of his kingdom here in this world. That's important, isn't it? It's important to assess the condition of your nation. The place in which you live. The place in which you work and act. It's, it's important to assess, properly assess, the condition of a nation or a kingdom. These last several weeks, I know you're fully aware that our current White House administration has been trying to pull our troops out of Afghanistan. We have been there for 20 years, and the understanding is that we've been there long enough. It's time to pull out. It's time to go. So within the administration, there are perceived experts perceived experts who would be tasked with the responsibility of knowing the condition of the country of Afghanistan. They would be tasked with assessing how strong the Afghan government and military is. They would be tasked with acquiring as much intel as they can, re- can uh, gather regarding the strength, support, and movement of their enemies and how to engage them using up-to-date intel while having created contingency plans should they be needed. They would be tasked with the uh, development of a sound exit strategy that would expeditiously remove all civilians and innocents before military personnel. It may be even advisable to remove our military equipment or destroy it so that it does not fall into the hands of the enemy. Those are the responsibilities that the administration is tasked with. Although the intent may be good and well to get out of Afghanistan, it is abundantly obvious that the assessment of what was going on in the Afghan kingdom was grossly inadequate. The images of hostilities that you see regarding the Afghan people and their situation, regarding their oppressors, are a reminder of why we need to listen to our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, regarding his kingdom when he says there is a problem, because he knows. 
So Jesus begins with the seven stars held in his right hand. The right hand is an image of authority for the Lord. Jesus is presenting himself here as the cosmic king of kings, as I said, the omnipotent God who holds all things in his hands. And this is significant because when you are facing persecution from the governing authorities and you see emperors uh, like Nero and especially Domitian exalting themselves even above the Roman pantheon of gods, that they see themselves as supreme deities over all deities. You start wondering, well, what are you doing, Jesus? Where are you? What's going on? So the first thing Christ Jesus does is to give assurances that he is the Almighty One, albeit the devil's efforts to counterfeit his authority and power here on earth through the governing system of Rome, especially the emperors. And that's what the devil does. Whatever is God to God's glory in heaven, he tries to counterfeit and copy it here in this world, trying to establish his own kingdom, his own base of action here on this earth. So Jesus starts with omnipotence, and then he also refers to his omniscience. That's being all-knowing, omniscience. He addresses this describing himself as one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, revealing the light of God's truth that emanates from him, from, from the Spirit, and, and going into the world through all the churches. How, how does the world know who God is, who Christ Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, apart from his people? Obviously, in general revelation, God has made all creation, and all creation glorifies him. It should be obvious that it, it, this, this creation came into existence somehow. And, and why it came into existence, no, no scientist can really explain that. All science can do is explain the what and perhaps the how. But they can't explain the why. They can't even touch that. That goes to the philosophers and the theologians. So you have God's general revelation that does reveal his glory. But as far as his love, his saving grace, his truth, How will this world know unless it is proclaimed through his people, through his church? And so the risen Lord says, I know your deeds. Look at verses 2 through 3. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have preserved persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your works. As you're sitting here, as I'm standing here, Jesus knows our deeds. He knows who we truly are, what we've actually accomplished or not accomplished. He knows us intimately. And the question is, what is he observing about you and I? What is he observing regarding Bethel Church? What is he observing regarding the church in Ephesus? He says, this is what I'm observing. First, you're a hard worker. Or you are hard workers. You toil. You put forth that effort uh, to persevere in a society. And, And when you think of Ephesus, Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. 
All trade routes went through Ephesus, so it was a very wealthy, well-to-do city. It had a massive library, so there was uh, a great uh, a flow of knowledge there and, and uh, philosophy. And, and so uh, the church had a tall task, and, and on all sides, it was probably being pressed in by the culture saying, this is true, no, that's true, no, this is true, no, that's true. And the church is saying, no, the gospel is true. God's word is true, and and they're being hemmed in kind of in a defensive position, but they're fully willing to defend the truth of God's word, to defend the gospel. So uh, the Lord recognizes their hard work. Kapos uh, is the Greek word there that is, is translated as burdensome and even distressing. Your labor is harder than those around you, harder, more challenging than your, than your neighbors. They, they can go out and, and do certain things that you will not do because it's not honoring to the Lord. You think about tithing, that you give of your resources. Life costs enough the way it is, and yet uh, the Lord uh, uh, calls you to tithe. And, and those around you, your neighbors, may not be tithing. They, they may not be going to church uh, they might live their lives the way they want. On Sunday, they do as they please, where you are gathered here in worship. And then you think about the, the continued task and responsibility of loving your neighbors. Not just loving and supporting each other in this, in this body, but loving your neighbors. Doing good to those who even persecute you. And that is work, that is labor. And, and the Lord is saying, I see what you're doing. I know you're persevering in this. And these are good things. You're defending the word. You're defending the faith. And that's good. He continues on. Uh, He says, I know you don't tolerate wicked men. Uh, They've tested the claim of those who consider themselves apostles, who say they have apostolic authority and they are found to be false, which means that these people abide in the word of God. So the condition or what they know theologically and apologetically seems pretty sound. The condition of what they appear to know seems solid. They sound like they're doing great. They really do. But how easily we get distracted. What does Jesus tell them in verse 4? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. One illustration that comes to mind when we're given to thinking about forsaking our first love is when two people get married. And the years go by and you have children and you've weathered many storms in life and and that, that love that was new and fresh at the beginning has become routine, has become more of a, a responsibility than a desire, than a devotion-driven desire to please and encourage and and care for your spouse. And when it gets to that point where your service is more out of obligation than loving devotion, uh, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to, to start devoting yourself to other things or maybe even other people as you forget the first love that God has given you. And yet it's out of that loving relationship that new life comes forth as children. 
It's out of that loving relationship that you learn how to encourage and strengthen each other. It's out of that relationship, that loving relationship, that you grow closer to one another. And yet we can have that routine sense of duty in the church as well. Where we don't do things out of love for Christ. We do it because we're supposed to. Because this is what tradition says we are to do. Not because we love Jesus. And want to honor and serve him and live for him. How easy is it to go from loving your neighbor to hating your enemies as you are challenged by all the different philosophies and religious perspectives of the day? That's a question to us. How easy is it to go from loving your neighbor to hating your enemies as you are challenged by the different philosophies and religious perspectives of the day. There's a transition in that statement. It's not that you don't hold your enemies accountable. It is not that you don't address them from from biblical truth. The key word is love versus hate. What do you do when you hate people? You defend If you feel like somebody is a threat to you, you defend yourself from them. And instead of going on offense and trying to minister to them and love them and show them Christ's mercy, you you back up and you become defensive. And it's more about protecting what God has given you. You protect your family. You protect your resources. You protect your own life. You defend it. You don't use it and and freely give of what Christ has given you to give to others. But defense is not in and of itself a bad thing. You note there in verse 6, Jesus says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus is affirming uh, in in that statement the need to take care of and defend the faith the truth of God's word, but to not forsake or abandon your first love, which is our devotion to Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. By the way, the Nicolaitans were a Gnostic group, one of uh, a sect uh, in the early church era who believed they they wed Grecian philosophy, the the philosophy of the Greeks with with, uh, the word of God, And they came up with this perspective that the flesh is evil and sinful. This is a Nicolaitan view anyway. That the flesh is evil and wicked and you can do anything to the flesh as long as you preserve the soul. So it's a duality where the soul and the flesh are are not the same and that when the body dies it will just rot in the grave and then the soul is what goes on to be with God. This is what they believed, which is false. And by Gnostics, Gnostic... Uh, gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. <laughs> and since Jesus is the knowledge and wisdom of Christ, him hating this movement kind of reveals that they are not refer- receiving the knowledge of God, are they? They are not the gnosis of God. So anyway, the issue, what is the condition then of your heart and mine? Jesus is saying, you are not doing what you're doing because you love me. 
You're simply going through the motions. We don't want to hear that. Because we really don't want to know the condition of our heart. It's, it's, we have this sense, it's always better to, have, to live with a little pain and just get along than go to the physician and have him tell, tell you that this is the reason for your pain. And it's actually a serious matter. For some, uh, maybe they're anxious about their future or anxious about where they're, where they're at physically and, and it's just the pressures of the day. They're actually physically uh, rather well. And the doctor can tell them that. You're going to see that in the churches to come. But for others, you're so busy being entrenched in warfare, you're so busy being entrenched in daily routines and daily work that you haven't, haven't even paid attention to the fact that there are certain ailments in your body that need to be addressed. And so Jesus gives us the news of what needs to be addressed in our hearts. That our wills need to change. Our pride does not want to allow it, but this assessment from Jesus, the great physician, is meant for our good. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's purpose is that his kingdom would be established on earth as it is in heaven. But that kingdom is growing with newly adopted children. And how do you find, how do you locate these children? Well, you have to go out and find them. You have to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that, that means that you need to love them. Even if at first they come across as your enemies, as if they despise you and hate you because they don't know what you're teaching, they're in darkness and you're shining the light on this darkness and it scares them to death because they don't like what they see. They don't like the assessment of where they're at. And so they want to fight against you. But the call is to love them. Our labor must not only be mere obligation lest we turn into Pharisees going through the motions of heeding tradition while abandoning our love for God. No, if this is our condition, we need to repent and do the things we did at first, willfully following Jesus, trusting in His Holy Word through the Holy Spirit's counsel and loving people outside of these walls. Jesus has given us parables that help us to understand His assessment here. And this is a parable you know well, so I'm going to refer to specific verses. This is in Matthew 25, if you want to turn there. It begins with verse 14, and it's the parable of the talents. Verse 14 is the most important verse in that whole passage. It says, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. What does this master entrust to his servants? Well, the translation is his property. But the Greek word is huparko, which refers to everything that exists. It means everything that is at their master's disposal. He's giving to them according to their ability to use for his kingdom purposes. 
Everything. The power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of his word, the, the, the power of God from heaven. Miraculous power even that he can, he can unleash if necessary. Everything that is at Christ's disposal, he is willing to give to us according to our ability. That means according to our faith, according to our knowledge, according to our practices, according to what we can accomplish with what God has, has equipped us with. Is at our disposal. The question is, what are we going to do with it? What do we do with it? Well, you have the first two servants. You know what they did. They were faithful with what God has given them. Whatever their master had had given them, they had gained more by investing it in the world. But then we come to the third servant, don't we? And the third servant, instead of going on offense, instead of going out into the world and reaping where the master did not initially sow, he went on defense. He dug a hole in his field, put the treasure in there, and buried it. When he stood before the master, the master said, What is this you've done? I knew you were a hard servant reaping where you didn't sow, and so forth. And so I was fearful, and I hid your, your treasure, and here it is. What's the key word? Fearful. He wasn't faithful. He was fearful. We can go through a transition as a people of God where we go from being faithful in witnessing to him or witnessing for him to being fearful. Fearful of the costs, the risks that are involved in investing and preaching the gospel to this world. Fearful of what our neighbors might think about us. Fearful of being kicked out of uh, the club, if you will. You know, in, in, uh, the, day of, uh, in, in the time of the church of Ephesus, if, if you wanted to be part of the larger culture, if you wanted to be part of the marketplace, part of the business world, uh, part of the governing structure. You had to play the game. You had to go along with what they required of you. We're getting a sense of that in our culture today. It's not totally there, but it's moving in that direction where if, if, if you want to be part of the larger society, you've got to play the game. Almost literally. You know, if, if, if you want to be involved in sports, I think of this especially on, on, in larger schools. If you want to be involved in sports, uh, you've got to play and practice on Sunday. I know it's on Sunday. Who cares? This is important. If you want to be part of the team, you've got to play the game. You've got to put in your dues. And so it's an issue of if you're not willing to do this, you're on the outside. And we see this more and more in our own society where the church is being marginalized and if you don't play the game the culture wants you to do, or the larger society wants you to do, then you're on the outside looking in. So there's that fear as well. And it's a real one. But the master said you could have put it on, given what I've given you to the bankers. If you're not willing to use it for my glory, you could have given it to those who would be willing to use it for my glory. And you didn't even do that. You defended and preserved it. 
and you think about it, that's what's going on in Revelation with the church of Ephesus. We are to give Christ to this world. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 23-25. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. We preach Christ. We, we give Christ to this world because those whom are going to be adopted into his family, into his kingdom, will be drawn in through the power of Christ. That is our first command. That is, that is our commission. Jesus gives this command in Mark 16, verse 15. He says, go into all the world and preach the good news. My good news to whom? To all creation. That is not my wish for you. That is not my desire for you. That is my command to you as your Lord and Savior to continue to proclaim, to continue to present me to the whole world until all my people All my children have been gathered in. Then the end will come. But until that time comes, you are to continue to be faithful in this task. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the one who started this process. And people come to salvation, come to life through the life that is given to them through his blood. You know, it would be a good exercise to look through the, through, look at church history regarding what happens to those churches or denominations who neglect the Lord's command to preach His gospel to all nations. What happened to this third servant who did not repent but justified his actions in the presence of his master? Well, you know the story. He was cast out into the outer darkness. Because instead of repenting, he justified himself in the presence of his master. What did Jesus say he would do to the church of Ephesus if they do not repent of abandoning their first love? He says, I will remove your lampstand from its place. I'll remove the light, the spirit from your church, from your denomination. And you will go from being alive to being dead. So repent. Do the things that you did at the first. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Theologian Joe Stoll states, Artemis was the goddess of fertility and life in Ephesus. One of the great symbols of that fertility and life was a huge and massive tree in the outer courtyard. Women who wanted to become pregnant would come and touch that tree. People who wanted better health or even healing would come and touch that tree as a tree of life. And you remember that Satan sets up counterfeits down here on earth There is a real tree of life. 
But it's not there, and it's not in this world. It is in the paradise of God. We must not forsake our first love, our devotion to Christ Jesus, and following his command to to bring and preach the gospel, not just proclaiming it, but living it in the presence of our neighbors, in the presence of our community, in the presence of those all around us through missions throughout the whole world. We are to proclaim Christ Jesus so that his people, his children might be saved and drawn into his kingdom. And for those who perseveres, you eat from the tree of life. There's everlasting life as a crown for you in the paradise of God. So the question at the end, again, is the same as the beginning. What is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your heart? Are you devoted to God? Is your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you just going through the motions? Are you just working according to tradition? Maybe we need to repent and turn to him fresh and new and tell him we're sorry for falling into that trap of routineness. Lord, rekindle our hearts and enable us by your Spirit's power to give you the love that you are deserving of and to love your people as well, that we might bring true glory to your name. Amen.